Hello! Today on our show, I'll be talking to Natalie Tinian Gan. Natalie lives in Vancouver and is a part of a three person artist collective called Hong Kong Exile. They're an interdisciplinary collective, so they make all kinds of work. Natalie is a dancer and choreographer, and other members of Hong Kong Exile are M- Milton Lim and Remy Su. Remy is a composer, and Milton is a theater director and designer. Hong Kong Exile was founded in 2012 and have since developed a reputation in Vancouver as rigorous and prolific performing artists. They have performed at the Can-Asian International Dance Festival, Seattle Dance Festival, Dancing on the Edge, Push International Performing Arts Festival, where they're currently artists in residence. The three of them met when they were studying at Simon Fraser University in Vancouver. Natalie was studying dance, Milton was studying theater, and Remy was studying music. The work they make looks like anything from experimental cinema complete with tech wizardry and contemporary dance, sometimes a wild combination of the two. They take turns between being lead artist on each project. Today I'll be talking to Natalie about two dance pieces that will be coming to Peterborough on September 21st, 2017 at the Market Hall Performing Arts Centre to launch Public Energy's 2017-2018 season. For those of you that haven't seen Hong Kong Exile's work, they are visually amazing. Dancers twist and shake as projections of cinema clips flash behind them. Bright purple, green, and yellow lights cut through a haze of fog on stage as bombastic pop music blares and the dancers flash through the space. The two pieces they will be performing are called 9-8 and Room 2048, each referring to a 50-year period of transition that was declared when the British gave Hong Kong back to China in 1997. And it was decided that this period of transition would be referred to as one country, two systems, and would last until 2027, when no one was really sure what would happen. We're now in 2017, exactly 20 years after Hong Kong was handed over, and 30 years from when the one country, two systems will be over. I reached Natalie on the phone in Paris. Room 2048 just premiered this past spring at the Fire Hall Theatre in Vancouver, and I'm excited to talk to Natalie about what 9-8 and Room 2048 mean to her. I right now have the pleasure of speaking with Natalie Gan of Hong Kong Exile. I'm talking to Natalie, who is right now in Paris. Hi, Natalie. How are you? I'm doing great. And how are you? I'm well, thank you. So can you tell us a little bit, first of all, very first thing, um, about the name Hong Kong Exile. Where did it come from? What does it mean? So the name Hong Kong Exile is actually the name of a work that Remy wrote in uh, back in, I think, maybe 2010 or 2011. We, we thought that it spoke a lot to um, what we find quite similar about the three of us together. Um, and at that time when we had met, we found that a lot of our conversations revolved around, revolved around what it meant to be our generation uh, Chinese diaspora and the cultural specificities of that and how that reflects in our work and how that made us think certain things and have different perspectives on education that we were having. And so um, the notion of exile, I think, is a really timely and relevant one, especially as um, in the era that we live in with, with such hyper-mobility and, uh, and with such a refugee crisis on our hands. Uh, it just means that everyone 
is everywhere. And so um, so soon, I'm sure, um, all of us will be having come from somewhere recently um, or looking to return to somewhere that we came from. Um, and perhaps uh, more often than not, it will be a place that you can't actually return either for political reasons or because the place that you remember uh, no longer exists in the way that you remember it. When Natalie uses the term diaspora, she's talking about a scattered population whose origin resides in a smaller geographic locale. Diaspora can also refer to a movement of population from its original homeland. What is it like working in a collective? I'm sure sometimes it's easy and sometimes it's very difficult. Uh, Yes, exactly. It is very much uh, a marriage. Even though I actually think it's probably uh, legally (laughs) Less <laughs> we do uh, rotate uh, who is leading a project, and so that's um, it. So happens that in twenty, I guess twenty thirteen, we received a commission for for nine eight, and then since then, Milton uh, uh, Peace and Remy Peace, and then we uh, uh, had kind of Room Twenty Forty Eight uh, scheming in the back burner, and then uh, knew that we had the option to premiere it in 2017. So I have a question for you. What do the three of you fight about? Oh, yeah. (laughs) We fight uh, a lot about what is the stronger choice to be made. Mm. You know, I know that I mentioned that we rotate in in leading projects, but it doesn't... And I think that this is both a blessing and a curse, but the fact that it has the HKX stamp on it means that we all feel similarly invested. Mm -hmm. We all feel similarly implicated, which means that you're not just going to let it fly if you don't agree. Right. It's funny working with abstract forms, like what is the quote-unquote right or the quote-unquote best or the quote-unquote strongest. Right. It's a... It's so felt and so not literal and so wordless that it makes fighting difficult. <laughs> right, because if, if everyone's essentially going with their gut, then how do you argue that with each other? Exactly, in a sense? exactly. And so a lot of our fights involve someone being like, but why? And my not really struggling for an answer. It, it sounds like the, um, they each sort of mirror the effect of the audience a little bit too in that They'd force you, or you each force each other to to clarify sort of your vision, right? Um, or justify the choices. Yeah, yeah. Within Hong Kong style, we have quite a rigorous internal dramaturgical machine. And I do think that that uh, results in stronger work. So, so yeah, so tell us about, about uh, Room 2048. Let's start there. And about, you know, what you were thinking and feeling when the three of you made that work um the the sort of urgency behind it um why that work why then something happened in one of the early rehearsals building this new untitled piece which was supposed to be 9-8 revisited and it was that our dramaturg Lucy Fay asked of me uh what right did I have to be investigating and staging the um, issues, political issues that were having a very real-time effect on people living in Hong Kong. 
So she was basically like, oh, you know, why is why do you have the right to tell the story when you don't actually have to bear the weight of the consequence of how these events play out? And I was super stumped by that one, and I um, and I was like, touche. <laughs> That's a good point. I don't actually have an answer to that question. Um, mm. um, and they're they're somewhere along, maybe that same day, maybe the day after. While I was kind of sitting with that, Cece uh, and I were just chatting about how, in preparation for rehearsals, I had been, you know, nine eight had been my watching a lot of Stephen Chow films that I grew up with. That was the uh, primary source material of that work. And then for preparing for uh, these this next stage, I was watching a lot of Wong Kar Wai films. And and Sifu and I were just, you know, we just all started talking about Wong Kar Wai. And just as an aside, Wong Kar Wai is a Hong Kong second wave filmmaker internationally renowned for his visually unique and highly stylized filmmaking. Wong Kar Wai was born in 1958. And Sifei is, I would say, the generation um, of my of my parents. So the um, and so not first generation, depending on how you define it. But what was interesting is that despite our age difference, we both um, were agreeing how Wong Kar Wai's films have become a, a visual language that we, as as Chinese diaspora, um, relate to as as a common language, as a common history, uh, despite the fact that we don't have a common land, uh, because oh, say mm-hmm. is Malaysian and I was born and raised in Canada. You know, we're all we're all moving, we're all being born in different places, we're all traveling elsewhere, but we still could agree that there were certain moments in certain seminal Wong Kar Wai films that we were like, yes, yes, that reminds me of my childhood. Yes, that reminds me of what old Hong Kong is and looks like, as if we knew, <laughs> as if we were there, as if we were all collectively there. And I got really, really fascinated by this notion of um, of cinema as as um, as designing our, our post-historic imagination. And, that, and that's actually where Room 24 Day began. That's really interesting. And so, and by contrast, what were, uh, what were your influences or what were you thinking, feeling, reading about uh, when 9-8 came about, which would have been several years earlier? 9-8 was born from, well, first it was born from my finding it very peculiar that I could watch um, old uh Ni- uh, 1990s Cantonese comedies that I had watched as a kid, as I could watch them now as an adult, with both a sense of uh, deep familiarity with the with that cinematic language, and with a strange foreignness to what was being shown. Right. Mm-hmm. And when I started researching these films, it occurred to me that a lot of that classic comedy, uh, which is called Moli Pao, um, that language or that phenomenon came out of uh, people's anxiety about the impending 1997 um, Hong Kong handover that had in China. Mm. And that this kind of lowbrow humor and entertainment had all of these really, really interesting political facets to it. 
And it was it was people's way of not only escaping the, the fear and concern about what was going to happen post-97, but it was their way of um, really owning what they saw as the Hong Kong identity, the, the Hong Kong spirit, the Hong Kong humor, um, right. and that that was something, that that was subversive, that Absolutely. being able to, to take that and, and make it only for an in-group and not the out-group um, was kind of bol- bolstering their 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 identity. Um, I watched these films again, and I felt I feel like I can I could feel that impending doom. And so, so it's it's with that heavy heart that um, that I made nine eight. Mm. Mm. And it was also I think, and also with hope. Um, and I would say with both nine eight and room twenty forty eight, there's a there's there's, I think there's a lot of anguish, um, but there's also a lot of there's a lot of spirit and there's a lot of cheeky humor. So for you, I mean, it's interesting in that you're making nine eight long after the transitions already happened, but about and referring to that moment beforehand, right? And those feelings of fear about what's going to happen to Hong Kong. Um, um, but you're making it after that transitions already happened. Um, is that because? That's that fear, anxiety about the future is something you feel like is still present um, in in Hong Kong, or something that's still present for you in in your day to day life in, in Vancouver or in the world at large right now. That's a that's a wonderful question, and yeah, you're absolutely right. What's interesting is we made we started making nine eight in 2015, and we premiered it in April 2014, and in the fall of 2014. Um, what took place in Hong Kong was something called the Umbrella Movement, which was um, a 79-day occupation of uh, of the streets by uh, by thousands thousands of individuals who were um, fighting for universal suffrage and um, fighting against what they saw what um, was a lot of kind of heavy-handed oppression from the Republic of China. So, interestingly enough, 97 um, was the year of handover, and 2048 is the first year after the 50-year transition. And this 50-year transition was put, um, I guess, was uh, stipulated um, by the British as kind of a safeguard to uh, to appease the Hong Kong citizens who were really concerned about um, how how would they retain their way of life. Mm-hmm. And so, just not to rock the boat or have it too violent, they they put they wrote in a 50-year transition. Um, and it's this year happens to be the 20th year anniversary, and even in the last even in the last two years, have we seen a lot, um, a lot of concerning activity take place. But what we're seeing in Hong Kong is, uh, like for example, there's certain ways in which um, the Republic of China has found ways to um, limit or restrict the use of Cantonese in public spheres. Um, and, you know, with uh, with Room 2048, we were working with a uh, UBC PhD candidate um, who's, uh, who specializes in Cantonese tonal language. And she argues that within 30 years, we could really see Cantonese completely being wiped out. Wow, and so 
there is a lot of political and economic interest in taking um, in really restricting cannabis use and um, and stamping out it for to thrive and survive and thrive. Mm-hmm. Um, and strangely enough, we're seeing very uh, we're seeing parallels in Vancouver proper. And so when you when you ask about about uh, about that urgency, it is what's bizarre is when we made nine eight. We made nine eight because I was just thinking about these movies, um, and because I we received I received a commission to make something, and that's what was on my mind. But I hadn't I did not realize um, the 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 heat and the or the temperature and um, desperate situation that was going to bubble into the umbrella movement later that year. And then when it all when it was all come, happening, we were all like, "Oh, holy! We kind of preempted that one, <laughs> or not not really, but this work this work asks what are we to expect in the future? And what and and we were watching the TV, watching the footage from the movement." And with really heavy hearts, we're like, "Oh, it's this. This is what this this answers the question." <laughs> right. Um, and so since then, the uh, then that movement came and left, and they were forced to pack up. Um, even very recently, um, while I was while I've been out of town, have the um, three of the student activists who led the charge on that movement. Uh, they were very recently uh, imprisoned, mm. and so so the it's all it's all happening right now. Right. We didn't I don't think we ever knew that nine eight would be that timely, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, but and then and then to you know so that's there's the there's the Hong Kong context, there's the Vancouver context, and then there's a very very personal context that we draw upon both in nine eight and twenty forty eight, um, and that being the fact that. Uh, most of us are Canadian-born um, Cantonese-speaking diaspora, and everyone in the room almost has a conflicted, tenuous relationship with how good our Cantonese is. Okay, how good is your Cantonese? I have to ask you. Or, or what does that what does that conversation look like when you're when you're talking about about Cantonese between the three of you? We feel very. Oh, I think it's tough for me to speak on behalf of Remy and Milton, but I know that Remy and I speak Cantonese to each other in our broken Cantonese um, often, because because we know because because the situation is a little bit dire and um, and it's come to our attention that what we how much of our how much of that language we bring forth to the next generation mm-hmm. is how much other language survives to the next generation, and so all of a sudden I feel a bit of responsibility mm-hmm. um, for my mother tongue, mm-hmm. uh, regardless of how proficient I am at it. And so, it's, so Remy and I actually go to Cantonese uh, lessons together. <laughs> Earlier, you mentioned. Um there being parallels to repression of speaking Cantonese in public in Hong Kong and in Vancouver or something, seeing that replicated in Vancouver. What do you, what did you mean by that? 
we're seeing a clear mandarinization of of our trend tone. Okay. And and um and that goes hand in hand with economic interest. Um with with regard to the gentrification um you know, just just getting our Cantonese seniors out of Chinatown uh means more space for really, really fancy bars and really fancy clubs and really fancy restaurants that um, are to serve a different community and not so much the Chinatown community that is there. Right, right. And and so there's been a lot of activism and a lot of work. There's a lot of work being done right now to look after and to preserve and to um, to support Chinatown and Chinatown residents um, a lot of whom, and most of whom, are uh, low income, uh, to, to try to stay in that space, yeah. uh, because because Vancouver Chinatown is um, historic and um, and important to mm-hmm. the important to Vancouver's history, mm-hmm. and so so the, the two pieces because I think one could you can spend a lot of time talking about and I I. I have debates with people all the time. I have debates with people in, in in my head, actually, about like how far do we go to preserve something that is on its way out, quote unquote. And there's been documentaries done about Chinatown that make it that try to position it as a place that's dying. Right. But but um, it really is. You know, you see what you want to see, and if you see mm-hmm. the like utter importance and magic of that space, that is unique so unique to itself and not like any other part of Vancouver, not even like Richmond, which is where a lot of Chinese immigrants have gone. Um, it, uh, it, would, it would lend you to want to make sure that we don't cover it up with bars, pubs, and restaurants for, yeah. for, for um, uh, more... Um, you know, for people with money and for uh, mm-hmm. people who speak English. Do you see Hong Kong as a place that's dying, culturally speaking? Oh, um, oh, you know what? Uh, my first impulse is yes. The odds are so stacked. <laughs> the odds are so stacked if you look at where the world is going and you look right. at how money is flowing. Um, and you look at where the power, who is holding the power, it, it's really clear that um, that there may be some who don't stand a chance. And right, I think right now I'm feeling particularly um, hopeless and helpless about the situation. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I think that um, and and I think that's in some way I think maybe. That's there's a semblance in there for why Room 248 means that much to me because I think there's a there's a lot of regardless of the um, whether it's in vain or not I mm-hmm. think the desire to remember and the desire to value and the desire to 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 honor and to reach back for that past gives it life gives it significance and that's a lot of Room 248 is is what is that nostalgic space. Um, what is the power of it? What's the creativity and and um, and strength and resilience and sexiness of it? 
Natalie again, thank you so much for for joining us today and for speaking with me on the phone from Paris. We are so thrilled to have you speaking on behalf of Hong Kong Exile and to have you in Peterborough on September 21st. Wonderful. Thank you, Victoria. Bye-bye. Bye. To hear more Curators Corner, head to publicenergy.ca or curatorscorner.ptbopodcasters.ca. You don't want to miss our next episode about Brian Solomon's Nogajiwanong Rite of Spring. Sound excerpts are taken from recordings of live performances of 9-8 and Room 2048 by Hong Kong Exile. Public Energy is Bill Kimball, artistic producer, Victoria Moore Blakeney, performance curator, Susan Newman, bookkeeper, and Eva Fisher, administrator and podcast producer. That's me. Thank you to Rob Forte for our theme song, Damned Be This Transmigration, written and composed by Rob Forte and performed by M. Glasspool, Susan Newman, and Rob Forte. Thank you so much.